Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. You know, you're here on earth for a short time and you want to make a difference. And I felt like leaders can make the greatest difference because they have such a powerful impact on people. can be for good or can be for ill. Uh, and I wanted to be one of those people that had a very positive impact on people I worked with. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. It's not every day that we get the chance to talk to a business legend. Bill George is the former chairman and CEO of Medtronic. Under his leadership from 1991 to 2001, Medtronic's market capitalization grew from $1.1 billion to $60 billion, averaging an unbelievable 35% growth per year. He's served as a director for Goldman Sachs, ExxonMobil, Target, among many others. Bill and his wife Penny are renowned philanthropists. They've given away about half their wealth so far through the George Family Foundation, supporting programs and initiatives that transform lives. He's a purpose-driven leader who has now spent more years teaching leadership at the Harvard Business School than he did running a company. He's written many books on leadership, and the latest is the Emerging Leaders edition of his True North series, where he asks the question, how do we empower the next generation of leaders in turbulent times? In it, he shares interviews with 220 other renowned leaders. He offered us a crash course in effective leadership, which started with his own ambition to lead a company from the time he was a kid. I'd always had myself committed to a business career. Actually, my father got me thinking that way back when I was nine and 10 years old about being head of a major company. And uh, he pushed me to study engineering at Georgia Tech, which I did. Although I have to be blunt and say that I had a lot to learn about leadership. I remember uh, never being chosen to lead anything in junior high and high school and running for president of senior class my senior year and losing my margin of two to one and then going off to Georgia Tech and losing six more elections in a row until some seniors told me that no one is ever going to want to work with me, much less be led by me, until I uh, started to care about people. And they were right. Leadership yeah. is all about relationship. So that's what it was? You, you, I mean, did you just, you wanted to win, but your heart wasn't really in it and people saw that? My heart was in it, but I didn't know the human side. Leadership is all about leading with the heart. It's not just leading with your head. Mm-hmm. And I was trying too fast. I was a kid that tried too hard and was trying to get ahead too fast and thinking I could build a resume and that was what it was all about. And that's not what it's all about, you know? What made you ambitious like that at a young age, running for class president and all that? Was your father in business? Was he a leader or your mother? He was in business. He was not the leader. And he took me aside when I was nine and said, son, I failed to become a leader. I want you to become the leader I never became. Hmm. And so uh, he even told me the companies he wanted me to lead, like Coca-Cola and uh, Procter and & Gamble and IBM, but, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about these companies. 
But uh, I realized later I had so much to learn about leadership, the human side. And that's what I learned in college and in graduate school. And uh, that was the most important learning. Not, not all the statistics and accounting and marketing and all that, which is important, but not nearly as important as the human side of leadership. What appealed to you, though, about leading, about running a company, or just about, you know, working your way up the ladder in business? I feel like, uh, I just immodest, but I, I have, you know, you're here on earth for a short time and you want to make a difference. And I felt like leaders can make the greatest difference because they have such a powerful impact on people. Can be for good or can be for ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to be one of those people that had a very positive impact on people I worked with. Do you so so talk a little bit about um, what what do you see when you think back? Um, were, were some of the the key steps that led you to Medtronic? Well, uh, I think you know. I again, I was on this uh, idea. I'm going to be CEO of a major company, mm-hmm. and I was at Honeywell here in Minneapolis, Minneapolis Honeywell, before they sold out to Allied Signal, mm-hmm. and a great company. They had a great mentor, Ned Spencer, and then. Uh, he retired, and his successor came in. And uh, but uh, I realized that I couldn't be who I was. You know, it was much more of an engineer's company, and um, we kind of had good values. We checked him at the door. And one day, I woke up and realized I really wasn't passionate about the business. I was passionate about becoming CEO, and that was not a good thing to be. So, hmm. in other words, I was making the same mistake I made back in high school, and so. Uh, I had turned down Medtronic, uh, Earl Bakken, and board members, great board members, three times for a job. And I called Wen Wall and the CEO back and said, is the job still open? He said, well, you can get line if you want. And I remember walking in the door five months later. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made everything that happened in my career uh, since then, and uh, including all the things I've been doing since I retired from Medtronic. So I, I give them a lot of credit for taking me in. And showing me how to lead with my heart, not just my head. Because Medtronic is a company that really is a mission-driven company that's trying to alleviate pain, restore health, and extend life and with very clear values. And I love working in that environment. I love working with the people who are there from whom I've learned so much. What role were you in when you joined Medtronic? What was your first title? I was uh, President Chief Operating Officer. Wynn Wallen was the CEO. Wynn was 63, so he knew he was going to be retiring in a couple of years. And I didn't have the job, but I had a good shot at it. Okay, so you went in kind of knowing that, that, that you, were, you were on that track. Uh, that was my hope, yeah. <laughs> How does that um, change things? I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you're sort of on that trajectory versus somebody who starts at the bottom and, you know, works their way up and maybe isn't even thinking they're headed that way. Uh, well, I think, you know, a big part of it for me was finding the right place. It just took me a while. I came here in 1970 to start the consumer and microwave oven business for Linden Industries. And we had a great run for nine years and I loved it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then Honeywell was a great run, but, you know, it wasn't really where I should be. And what I had missed is that sometimes small companies or mid-sized companies like Medtronic was grow up to be very large companies. So. When I came, it was about $750 million in sales. Now it's about $32 billion. It's not the numbers that count. And at Medtronic, we measure ourselves by how many people are restored to full life and health by our products. And when hmm. I came, it was 100 seconds. Every it took 100 seconds until another person was restored. 
time I left, it was down to seven seconds. And now, uh, thanks to the leadership of Omar Ishrock and Jeff Martha, it's down to two. It's uh, down or up, depending on you count, two per second. Amazing. So the company has serving a lot more people. And that's what matters. Yeah. You know, the, the profits are nice in the stock market like that. But that's the result of serving other people and helping them be restored. But at the same time, you're being modest. I mean, the the growth that occurred while you were at the helm of Medtronic was really epic. What do you attribute that to? What clicked? How do you grow a company on the scale that you did? I think it was all about innovation. We were continually looking for where is an unmet medical need and how can Medtronic serve that? Not just pacemakers and defibrillators, but with spine surgery, with diabetics, with neurological conditions like cerebral palsy or Parkinson's disease. We worked really hard at that, and the company has continued to do that. So I think that was what was unique about Medtronic. It wasn't about selling pacemakers or selling stents. It was much more about figuring out what's a medical need that's being unmet today, hmm. and how can we serve that? How can we help people? And then we would bring these patients in. They were the kind of the early... Uh, recipients of our products and they would tell their stories. It was just stunning to listen to them and, you know, the employees would be in tears and I would be and, you know, we'd listen to their stories and it was so powerful. You were really thinking like an entrepreneur. Well, I was and, and I can't say I'm a real entrepreneur. I'm no Manny Villafana, <laughs> but it was I was kind of an entrepreneur because I was working from inside the company. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we were. We were thinking about how can we sustain our growth? We sustained 18 plus percent growth for 20 years, Hmm. uh, 20 consecutive years of 18 percent compounded growth. And uh, that that was a challenge. (laughs) It was like having a tiger by the tail. Hard to do that today, but uh, we did it. Could you do that today? Could you repeat that and, and that kind of growth? What's different today? Uh, well, I think it's a lot slower growth environment today. Uh, and of course, it's a lot of large numbers. The company's thirty billion in sales, right. so that would be uh, you'd have to you'd have to add six billion a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let, let's say half. you were starting out today. Let's say you were starting oh, I think out with you're starting out. Sure, you could repeat it. Absolutely. You see, some of these smaller companies here done a great job in Minnesota. I'm very excited, and some of the things I've been trying to let go, like Inspire, that help people with sleep sleep apnea. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities, and this is an amazing center for all those opportunities in the world. There there aren't, really aren't any European companies doing creative things, and, and most of the creativity in America is centered right here in Minnesota. It seems like um, in, increasingly as there's more focus and appreciation for entrepreneurship, it seems like a career path that a lot of students today want versus going the big company route like you did. Why does it still seem like it's a little bit tougher for big companies to think like entrepreneurs and to, to innovate on the inside? That is a, a very insightful question because the larger they get, the more bureaucratic they become. The more they run by rules instead of people, the more they work by statistics instead of intuition, the less time the executives are spending out on the production lines, in the labs. That's where I spend my time. I spent, I think I saw 700 to 1,000 procedures hmm. actually counting up going into Mayo or Abbott Northwestern, watching the procedure be done with a doctor. That's where I learned. And then having lunch with the production employees and asking about the quality or going into the labs and got more ideas. Not that I had all the ideas. It was more creating an environment where the front line really matters. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing we learned in COVID was 
we're all dependent on the front line. You hear sometimes young people say, oh, I'm never going to the office. I'm going to work from home. Well, guess what? 60% of the workforce has got to be there. Who is it that's stocking the shelves at Target? Right. And, uh, you know, who's working in the labs at 3M? Uh, and who's working in the hospital like my son who's the surgeon? At Mayo Clinic or Abbott Northwestern, yeah. or, you know, you Methodist can't you hospital. can't do that over Zoom. No, you can't. And I think, but that's where the that's where the action is for Medtronic. It's life and death. But you know, uh, you know, Delta Airlines transformed itself and used to be had terrible relationships, and they have a great place. So when you walk on the plane, people greet you and they make you feel good. You go into a restaurant, they make you feel good. If they don't, you don't come back. I don't care how good the food is. Mm-hmm. It's all about do the employees care about their customers. And I think we've missed that in this era that we've just come out of, of focusing on maximizing shareholder value. You don't maximize shareholder value for the long term unless you serve your customers better than anyone else. Hmm. And I don't care if you're a restaurant or an airline or a medical technology company. That's what you got to do. So how would Bill George address challenges that leaders face today from diversity, equity, and inclusion to bringing workers back to the office? We'll discuss it all after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best and Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best in Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Bill George gave himself a term limit on being a CEO. He explains why and how it set him up for advising other leaders. When you look at what's going on today and the challenges, and especially, you know, we're, we're still, we're not completely out of this pandemic and, and just all of the issues going on, social, economic, are you glad you're not a CEO anymore? Uh, <laughs> I love being a CEO, uh, but I think you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. And I did my 10 years of mentoring. I actually took, gave the board the date that I would step aside and have a successor ready before I took over because I think CEOs stay too long. And one of the gifts I've been given is now I can look across the waterfront at a lot of companies mentoring a, a lot of CEOs in this community and a lot of the younger people are just getting started. And what a gift that is to have a chance to just uh, work with fabulous people. You know, I couldn't have written this book if I hadn't worked with uh, you know younger people throughout my career, but, but, but particularly the last 20 years since I've been teaching and had a, a a partnership with Zach Clayton, who's my co-author, who taught me an awful lot about how millennials think, you know, about digital technology, about life and other things. So uh, I think one has to continue learning. Yeah, That's the key to life if, in leadership is you continue learning. Once you stop, then you're kind of heading for the, <laughs> right. For the graveyard. Right. Well, let's talk about this new book, um, True, Your True North. What... What stands out to you? What's the most exciting? Was there an an interview in particular that if you had to name one, I'm sure they were all amazing, but you've got some real heavy hitters on these pages. Well, let's talk about why I wrote the book first. And I wrote this book because I think we're going through a massive change in leadership. The baby boomers have led a lot of organizations for the last 30 years. It's time to turn the, uh, if you will, turn the baton over to the next generation leaders, which I define as 
Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. Hmm. And I think they're ready. They know how to lead. Younger leaders, emerging leaders, know how to lead through the crises. Right now, all the CEOs I'm talking to and senior executives are saying, wow, you know, my people are so tired after two years of COVID. Now we're going to get hit with, uh, we're going to get hit with a 9% inflation and I raise prices. We're going to get hit with supply chain shortages. And by the way, we can't hire enough people on one hand. On the other mm-hmm. hand, we're afraid we're going to have to lay people off. We go, when are we going into recession? Right. And what's the impact of Russia and going into Ukraine? And will China go into Taiwan? So these are the kind of intersecting crises. And I think the younger leaders have spent the last 20 years leading in crisis, where a lot of senior leaders, their memories are earlier in their career was much more stable times. Hmm. So today, you can't just wait around to get back to stable times. You've got to be extremely flexible, extremely adaptable. Uh, if I can give you an example of a local CEO who is spectacular doing that, is Corey Berry. Hmm. He took over from Berry Jolie at Best Buy. I'm sure you've heard of Corey. Of course. 40, 44 years old when she took over. And, you know, she's been on the job. She was on the job seven months, and she got hit with COVID. And, uh, you know, she had to change her entire, entire business model in one week, yeah. like overnight, and uh, close a 1,000 stores, furlough people. She eventually brought them back, furlough 52,000 people, very painful to her. She tied it in with the government subsidies. But amazing, you know, showrooms all of a sudden became distribution centers. Mm-hmm. And you go to the store and pick up your TV set or your computer. Uh, huge change. And what a leader she is in having led people through that. She's a role model for the new emerging leaders, in my opinion. Let's break that down a little bit. So we can talk about some of the smart things she did, pivoting so quickly to curbside pickup and, you know, adding a wider variety of categories online. Those are specifics. But what to you is the overarching theme of what has made her an effective leader? Knowing who she is. She'll, the first thing she'll tell you, she comes from a small town in Minnesota. Her parents are artists, okay? Mm-hmm. They never had a lot of money. So she didn't exactly grow up with wealth. And nor did she, you know, try to go to a big name university. She worked her way up uh, from the bottom. And she was working in a finance and the controller's office. And then she got put down to Texas. And she only woman around and was head of finance for this southwestern region. That was a tough time, but mm-hmm. boy, she learned a lot. So she's a person of the people. Yeah. That's what I think leaders have to be today. She's out there. She's in the store. She knows her people. And she knows their pains, their joys, their sorrows. And so people really trust Corey. And that she's doing, even when she had to furlough all those people, she said, I'm going to bring you back to that I can, but I can't tell you when it is. And we've tied it in so you can get the government. Remember, they had the stimulus package and the, the government compensation. So you'll lose your paycheck here next week, and you'll get theirs the following week. Mm-hmm. So she's just a very sensitive human being, but she's built a great team. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's got great people around her that know how to lead, like Damon Herman, who I think runs a lot of all their distribution now and a lot of the stores. So. While we're on the topic of Best Buy, you also reference Hubert Jolie in your book. Yeah. Wh- Hubert's a good friend of mine. Amazing. Go ahead and ask the question, but he's an amazing leader. Well, let, let's talk about it. I mean, do you see him as a, a, a different sort of leader than, than Corey? I mean, also a standout accredited with turning around the company. Did he leave at the right time? In, in retrospect, he did. I thought he was leaving too soon, but 
Hubert came in, and frankly, Best Buy was in deep trouble. They had a wrong, remember the CEO got fired for mm-hmm. an inappropriate relationship with yep. the customer, and the founder wanted to come back in and take over. And Hubert healed all that. But he, you know, the smart thing he did, you know, the company's in financial trouble. He didn't sit down with the finance people his first week. He goes to St. Cloud, Minnesota, and he spends a week working in the stores. And he said to me, Bill, I learned everything I need to know. And that week, oh, hmm. what was wrong with Best Buy? Yep. So he wasn't reading statistics at the headquarters. He's getting out there with the people, and he meet with customers. He watch the he got he he put on a sign that said uh, CEO in training, <laughs> and, and then he go out with the store managers for dinner, and they told him honestly, see that's where the action is. We got too many Allison. We have too many CEOs sitting up in their headquarters. Uh, reading reading reports and numbers and meeting with subordinates. Once you get down with the people and know what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, Brian Cornell has done that really well. You remember Be- uh, Target had real problems for Brian came in. Okay, they're having a rough patch right now. They'll come back. He is a great leader and done an amazing job reshaping, reforming Target. It's just incredible. Right. Others that uh, that inspire you for for various reasons. You want to pick out a couple others from the book. Oh, a lot from the book. One of them, local, Omar Ishrock, who became CEO of Medtronic, and the company was, frankly, having a real rough patch. They hadn't innovated for a couple of years, three years, and he is a doctorate engineer. He turned everything around, did a fantastic job. He's now gone on to be CEO of Intel. But, you know, here's, a, a, if you will, a kid from Bangladesh, Bangladesh, that goes to London to get his education, and not an upper-class kid at all, but somehow he got... Uh, and then he came here, worked for GE, and he said, I said, so Omar, Omar talks about the mission of Medtronic. I said, Omar, what's the mission of GE? And he said, Bill, it's making money. That doesn't inspire anyone. He saw Medtronic's mission. He couldn't stop talking about how important it was to restore people to full life and health. So he's a, they're really great people, though. Mary Barra, General Motors, a woman who was one of my students, Allison. She started at 18 on the production line for General Motors. Then they set her to get an engineering degree at Kettering, and then eventually, a few years later, going to business school. But she is a person of the people, just like I'm talking about. And she transformed that company. She knew they had a broken culture. They're run by a bunch of finance guys. And they really didn't understand how to make a, a good car, how to have quality. But she's transformed. She's in the process of transforming the General Motors culture. Done an incredible job. But it's a big company. It's hard to do. But I give her enormous credit. So. Uh, She's another one. That, there's a lot of great leaders. Ken Frazier, his grandson of a slave, if you can believe that, became CEO of Merck. And he was the person that walked out after Charlottesville out of President Trump's council. And he made a very bold statement that put everything that Merck had at risk. But he said, we believe in these principles that all people are created equal and independent of their race, gender, sexual identity, and and national origin, and everyone has to be treated equally and given equal opportunity. Amazing leader, and he created a drug called Petruda, which is the largest selling drug of all time, 50 Mm. billion plus. It's saving people with what's called immunology from cancer. So today, you don't just have chemotherapy and radiation, you get immunology. Right. And it can save your life, even with stage four cancer. On that note of, of taking a stand on issues, that has become such a um, hot topic and controversial topic in in the business world, where you you in your day 
Did you feel, would you have ever waded in to a political discussion or, or take, you led in a time before Twitter, before brands were taking a stand on issues. Was it simpler? Could you have imagined that we'd be where we are, where big companies were really kind of picking sides? What I couldn't imagine was the red-white, uh, the red-blue split. And the fact that politics is stalemate. The reason I wrote the book is because political leaders now are being asked, excuse me, business leaders and nonprofits like Glenn Gunnarsson and The Wire are being asked to, to step into these issues because the politicians can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a great governor here in Tim Walls, but, we, you know, the politicians in Washington aren't getting anything done and people are turned off. So I think business had to step into that. But look, I, I did. Yeah, I was quite outspoken. We had a situation, to be honest, uh, where much I love the Boy Scouts, they were discriminating against gay scouts and not letting them be scouts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, little 13-year-old boys that I'd coached in soccer, I mean, is that right? So I took a stand and allowed uh, all of our employees, the Medtronic Foundation, which has a policy that we're not going to support organizations to discriminate. So we have got United Way to agree that we could exclude uh, the Boy Scouts for discriminating if people, individual employees chose to. That led to a big firestorm here in Minnesota, and oh, this is awful. Builders doesn't like the Boy Scouts. Oh, I love the Boy Scouts, and they've now transformed themselves. But yeah. you know, so yeah, so I got out there. You did. So take us through that a little bit. I mean, what was there any part of you that thought, oh boy, I can't risk the company to go out and say this, even though I feel it? Did you feel like you had to? I mean, did you have conversations with the board before you did that? How how did you how did you go about it? Not with the board, but some of our employees, our head of our foundation, Penny Hunt, yeah. And we started to make that move. But look, you've got to make, leaders have to make bold moves. And I think, yes, you're going to have people disagree with you. Let's take uh, the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of CEOs that are saying, now we will take care of your health care needs wherever you have to go. If you live in Texas and you have to come to the Mayo Clinic, great. Or if you want to take your daughter to California, no questions asked. That's the policy at the CEOs now. And yeah, if, you know, people are going to consider that uh, terrible in some cases against my religious views, I would say I respect your religious views, but we have to take care of our employees. That's what uh, that big dust up at Disney, Mm -hmm. when Bob Chapek, the CEO, would not defend his LGBTQ employees. And he was going to force them to move to Orlando where they were changing the laws. And a lot of them didn't want to move in there. And then he changed his position midstream and then he got caught in the political. And I think. Today, it, let, let's, let's, I'm jumping around, but let's go to George Floyd's murder. And a very most painful time for an ass in Minneapolis. We thought we'd built this great uh, city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this happens. We have people say, Bill, don't call it a riot. It's social unrest. Call it whatever you like. But we had a great deal of disruption. Any CEO in this city that not only didn't get up and defend their black and BIPOC employees, but didn't have a program to realize we have a long way to go. I talked to a number of CEOs in this town that said, you know, we didn't realize how much discrimination there was, yeah. how, what the, how deep the problems are. So we have to have a plan. If you didn't, people didn't want to work there for your company. And so that's the big change today. Employees, Allison, today have agency. They feel that all of a sudden, I'm only going to work for a company that cares about its people, mm-hmm. that cares about climate change, that cares about diversity and inclusion. And uh, I may not be gay, but if they exclude gay employees, then I don't want to work there. That is very much the attitude of the people I'm writing for, the millennials, the Gen Xers, 
they're the ones that feel very strongly about this. And I think some of the old guard doesn't get this. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you give to leaders emerging or established on how to navigate this, on how, where to take a stand, how far to go? How do you, you know, it's, it's, everything is so polarized right now. It is. And I remember one of the local CEOs said to me, Bill, I want to engage in social issues, but I don't want to get involved in politics. Mm. And I said, honestly, you can't avoid it today. You're going to get drawn in. So I say, what I advise people, and I do teach this in a classroom, I wrote a case just uh, on the Georgia voting laws, just as a vehicle for talking about these issues. So my view is, know what your mission and values are. You can't engage in everything. But if there's an issue that affects your mission and values, then you better speak out. You better be behind it. If you believe in treating people equally regardless of their race, when you have a situation like George Floyd's murder, then you better speak out. And if you believe in your employees, like I felt uh, in the whole LGBTQ situation, that I had to defend our gay employees. I, I don't have any gay members in my family, but I felt like I had an obligation to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I was willing to take the heat. And I got some heat. I got a lot more heat than that. Anything else I did for hmm. missing earnings or something like that, I got more heat than that. But, you know, you stand for something. And I think in the end, Allison, people respect you. Mm-hmm. I think they respect you for being who you are. And uh, that, to me, is, in the end, isn't that what we all want? We want to be respected. No one, Not everyone's going to love you. But if you say, I respect your differences, you may feel differently than I do. But I respect that. But this company has to stand for something. What you talk about leading with having a moral compass. Obviously, you have to know who you are as a person, but then you're representing a a large organization, larger than yourself. So how do you um, draw the line between things that you, you know, the person might feel passionately about versus you, the CEO, and and is it really your place to be weighing in? Good. Yeah, I think you don't carry your own personal issues into the company. As CEO, you have to do the right thing. Uh, for your company. What is the right thing to do? And you think that's right. I'll give you an example. Personally, I witnessed Tim Clark, who is the dean of Harvard Business School, and I went there, is a devout Mormon, totally opposed to any form of same-sex relationships. I can tell you he was very, very supportive of the LGBTQ students at Harvard Business School. And he backed them, gave them funds to do programs, to support their organization and everything else. Mm -hmm. And so he had to have one thing. He was bishop of the Mormon church, and I know his beliefs were, but he had to do the right thing by his job. I think that's what you have to do. I think all leaders in any capacity have to put their organizations first, their institutions first, because you have a reputation. You mentioned the brand of a company. Medtronic spent 60 years building its brand. That is important. 3M, who could have a better brand for innovation? Mm-hmm. We had a leader there once who was diminishing innovation. Fortunately, only lasted three years. And, uh, you know, then others came in uh, and really put it back on the rails, and Gethul and, you know, and others. There's the, this other group of CEOs today, founders, many of them, and it makes for really good TV. There's a documentary about each <laughs> one of their failures. We work, Theranos. It goes on and on. Um, talk about that, about this kind of new breed of, you know, grow fast and reckless and, you know, fail fast. Well, it's, there are different people. There are some who fail because they, the business didn't work out. 
There are people that are fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Adam Newman at WeWork is a fraud. All he had was he was just buying up a, an office space. I mean, that's that, there's nothing unique about that, making it a fun place to work. He did, you know, the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes. She had a flawed idea that he used to take a finger prick, and she, everything was falsified, all her data and everything else. The people at Mayo knew that, and they said, Bill, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were right. So that's a different class. There are people, one of the people I feature in my book is Rajat Gupta, CEO McKinsey. He lost his way. He was a good person that lost his way because he got caught up in trying to become a billionaire. He's already worth $120 million. I think he can probably struggle through to the end. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I, I hope you or I could. Yeah, right, right. I'd, I'd, I would try. Um, but I think that, you know, the WeWork story, um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, I mean, they're sexy, unbelievable stories and it's so much money. And, and, and so, yeah, they make for good TV. But I think one of the other things that, that people relate to is maybe they wouldn't go as far as they would. Maybe they wouldn't lie. But, but this culture of, you know, this startup mentality and this raising money and, and doing it all so quick and it's got to be so big. I think that is something that even people who do have a moral compass are feeling pressured by today. Absolutely. So what do you say to them? Their investors are really pressuring it. Be careful who you take money from. <laughs> and to be careful that you have common objectives. If they have a different objective, they want to they invest in your company and they want to flip the ownership in three years, stay away. Be careful not to give over power and ownership to them. You better be in sync. Yes, I believe I work with a lot of people who are starting up companies. They're great people. They're doing great things. But be careful about who's owning your company because that's going to come back to bite you unless you really focus on what you want to do and you have investors that are supporting what you want to do. So, yeah, I think you're hitting on something. It's too fast. They want, people want to move too fast, too aggressively. And I think we've got to take it a step at a time. Right. Not everyone can grow that fast. And uh, it, it's sad when you see that happening to, to companies because great companies and it can frankly destroy the leaders, too. Yeah. I'm guessing you encounter, whether it's students or, or other, you know, younger emerging um, leaders today who don't want to go work for big companies like they, they might might have been the obvious path a, a generation ago. Is that a problem? that everybody wants to start something. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, we went from this when I gave, left Medtronic. I was shocked by how many people wanted to go to work in finance. They wanted to be on Wall Street. Or they wanted to go work in a hedge fund or private equity. Then uh, it kind of shifted after the 2008 collapse, and it shifted to uh, people want to start up their own companies, and that's still true today. And uh, that's that's fine. But not everyone can do that. I encourage people to go get some experience first before you dive in, because you might just pick out something small and, you know, go work and maybe work with an entrepreneur. But, yeah, there's a tendency to do that. But still, there are an awful lot of good people in large companies, I can tell you. They want to work for big companies, and they're committed, and they're doing the job. So a lot of young people do that, and they, they'd love to work for uh, a Medtronic, a 3M, a Target, a Best Buy. Uh, or any of the great companies. We're lucky to have so many great companies based here. Right, right. Um, we, you know, uh, what, what do you see since you're, you're here in, in Minnesota, you choose to stay here? W- why do you stay in, in the Twin Cities when you're teaching on the coast? You could live wherever you want. What keeps you in Minnesota? And, and what do you think about our business culture and how it's shifting today? 
Two questions, sorry. Well, first of all, none of us loves the cold winters, but I think <laughs> we have a lot, uh, you know, we, we, we've got a lot of friends here. We've been here 50, uh, 50 years, and this has been an amazing place for, even though we've gone to Belgium for three years and Switzerland for a year and a half and had a condo in Boston, we always come back to Minnesota because the culture is what we love about this and mm-hmm. the community, and we're deeply involved in my wife is, and I am, and various community organizations. Like we just made a huge grant to the uh, the YMCA, which will be announced shortly. But you know, for for well-being, and because we believe in in, in people's well-being, and uh, we have a foundation here that gives uh, heavily in Minnesota. Not all the funds, but the bulk of them are mm-hmm. here: 50, 60, 70 percent. We took a lot of our net worth that we've been blessed to get to Medtronic. Now, I see people, CEOs here in the community. First thing they do is they pack their bags and move to Florida and become a Florida resident and avoid Minnesota taxes. I'll be blunt. I think that's wrong. I earned it here. We'll pay the taxes here. <laughs> Don't we want to be in a community that has good schools, that is safe? Yes, we've got some issues right now with schools and public safety, but we want to be in a community like that. And that costs money to have that kind of community. Yeah. You can't do it on the cheap or you'll wind up like, Mississippi. It's not nice to say, but it's true. Right, right. I I talk to a lot of um, you know people in HR and people at big companies who are saying that you know it, it, it's always been tricky and difficult to recruit to Minnesota. Once people get here, they don't want to leave. We're, we're true. But, but but getting them here is a challenge, and getting them here now, especially um, professionals of color, is perhaps harder than ever. How do we move past that? We've got to have a bigger uh, BIPOC population of professionals. Uh, I went to school in Atlanta. Atlanta has probably the strongest upper and or middle and upper middle class black and brown population of any place in the country. And uh, you know, it's it's the norm. Uh, and we just need to have a lot more people like that, and on serving on boards and in top management. And so I think it's incumbent on all the organizations, not just the, uh, not just the, the businesses, but the nonprofits and foundations and healthcare. We have a huge healthcare community to be promoting diversity and, and creating inclusive organizations. If we do that, then yeah, it's going to be tough for a while to get there. But when we get there, then we'll be really solid. I brought in Bob Ryan, who happens to be black and grew up in Detroit. To be our CFO, he's still here, and incredible what he's done for this community. He was an amazing CFO of Medtronic. He really made the company go. Hmm. I I have no doubt that you would have been an amazing leader if you were an active CEO early in the pandemic when we all had to lock down. You would have been so great talking to everyone and thinking about the human side of things. I'm curious, if you were a CEO right now, Bill, what would you be doing as far as being hybrid, bringing people back to the office? How would you handle this whole remote work thing? Uh, great question. I think I'd have a flexible workplace. So in some ways, uh, the remote work uh, opened up our eyes to the fact that people with, you know, children, uh, somebody's got to be home taking care of them. <laughs> and, you know, as I told my students, uh, having two full-time jobs and taking care of a children is a full-time job, and you can't have two people doing it. You need a third, or you need to do something different. Something's got to give. So I believe in flexibility. Maybe you work three days a week in the office and two days at home, or maybe, you know, I hate to think my daughter-in-law can't go to my son's uh, parent-teacher conference because she's working in the hospital, 
and can't leave at 3 o'clock or 2.30 to get to the conference. I mean, we've got to be flexible. But I don't think it's going to wind up all remote work because I'll tell you what's missing in remote work is mentoring, uh, being assigned to a, a senior person to work with. Uh, what's missing is wandering around the office and, and halls and labs and factories and learning from the people. What's missing is real creativity and innovation, which comes from collaboration. It doesn't come from one genius in the lab. It comes from you and I and you and me and five other people getting around, sitting around the table with different points of view and arguing it out and coming to a much better solution. That's what's missing. So what I found in my classroom, which for a while was all remote, now we're back to live classes. People are so much more energized, so excited about it. Hmm. So, uh, But I do think we'll have some form of hybrid work environment, and we're going to have to learn how to do that well. Yeah. Um, what do you see as the, some of the other biggest challenges facing, facing leaders and facing businesses today? You've done a great job hitting on them. <laughs> uh, on, on the public, the public uh, need to speak out, the need to create not just a diverse workforce, an inclusive workforce. Uh, that's essential. And dealing with some of these challenging issues about the workplace. Uh, what I would say is, in addition to that, I think leaders today have to understand how to deal in a multi-stakeholder environment. In the old days, it was make your numbers, watch your share price go up, make a lot of money, retire, move on, go to Florida. That's not it today. Today, you have to meet the needs of your customers, your employees. You have to create a great community, and you have to meet the needs of your shareholders. And integrating all those in, and particularly with the agency employees have in the employee revolution, you better understand and your employees' real needs. And see, I think a lot of baby boomers who are senior, some of them have as role models in the book are great at that, but a lot of them are kind of not connected to the millennials. They don't understand the millennials. You understand them by working with them like I have the last 20 years, maybe 20 years before that. So I think they got to get out there and really know their own people and then create programs and and a deeper understanding of how to do it. So you can manage through these conflicting, often conflicting needs and come out with the best solution. And that requires some courage, uh, which many, I think, which many leaders don't have. So what I was going to say, we have too many managers. We have millions of managers. We don't have enough real leaders. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to develop more leaders. That's what I'm trying to do with my book is help people understand how to lead. Well, so if you if you had to leave us with one great lesson, and and hopefully everyone will read the entire book, but what what do you think is is most key to becoming a good leader? Today, it's follow your heart and lead with your heart. You're going to be you're a smart person. I've studied a couple hundred people who have failed. Not one of them failed because they weren't smart enough, but they failed because they aren't leading with their heart. So I would say today, open up your heart, be vulnerable. Be aware of who you are. Understand your challenges and your crucibles and your difficulties and be open and admit your mistakes, admit your weaknesses, and then ask people to help and work with you and help you be part of your team. And I think that's the big difference. Hmm. You, you talk about in the book, you say that you don't have to be born with certain characteristics. Leaders aren't born. They're, they're made. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? They are. And that's the academic mistake was that they were trying to say that we're going to find the inherent characteristics in leaders. There's no such thing. You're not born with courage. Hmm. You're not born with empathy. You develop that through your lifetime. And that's what's key. 
So you got to be open to that and really understand it. Yeah. Well, it's been such a, a joy and a pleasure. The book is called Your True North. It is definitely worth a read for, I think, anybody in, in any position. And, and like you also note, you don't have to be at the very top to be a leader. No, that's the key. In fact, you don't have to have any direct reports. I've seen people lead tremendously in, in laboratories and on production lines who had no direct reports. So, But I think there are not characteristics. You just have to learn how to lead. And I, I hope the emerging leaders will read the book because I think uh, it will enable them to become much better leaders. And some of the senior leaders may want to pass this on to their mentees or their, their, own, their own kids, too. Well, that's Bill George. What a treat. His latest book is the Emerging Leaders edition of his True North series. If you're feeling inspired to go on a leadership journey of your own, check out the programs offered by our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, which takes a purpose-driven approach to leadership, focusing on skills that help students make an impact in their industry and community. And of course, we've got a whole library of leadership lessons ready for you on By All Means. Check out the full archive at tcbmag.com slash byallmeans or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means.